Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hoops, and you're listening to Walking Through Fire. So I served in the U.S. Army and the National Guard for over a decade, and in that time I met some very interesting people. Some were weird as fuck, like guys who wore dusters and New Balances with jeans during the summertime. There was another guy who I met who rode the rails and just joined the Army for a place to sleep. I also served with guys who were from uh, Ghana and the children of Iranian immigrants. That being said, the military for the most part can almost be compared to like what most people would usually take as their college years because most of the guys, and when I keep saying guys, I was in a combat arms MOS, so there was only women, or there was only men allowed to serve in that part. There weren't really too many women. Uh, so, I mean, I just, I just want to give that caveat when I keep saying guys or men and things like that. I'm not trying to you know, put anyone out there, but it just is what it is. Um, only men could serve in the jobs that I was in. So I just kind of want to caveat that right there. But, uh, the military, I mean, it, it can be kind of compared to a lot of people's like college years because a lot of the guys joined straight out of high school. So it's kind of like those late teens, early twenties, uh, years. Uh, so it's kind of like a time where you're exploring yourself and like, you're in a different place with a bunch of new people from a lot of different backgrounds and you kind of start beginning to really explore yourself uh, to an extent as well as, you know, you're in a, a, a pretty much a microcosm in itself, a, a world that's, you know, a world in itself is what, what essentially the military is. Most people don't spend all their, their life in the military. And when that time ends, we as veterans tend to go different paths. Could end up like Ice-T, or maybe like James Earl Jones. But for today's topic, we're going to discuss people who took a route that was way different than the guy who voiced Darth Vader, and ended up becoming a serial killer. While I'm not trying to be a full, like, true crime podcast, or a criminal justice expert... A lot of serial serial killers typically have one common denominator. They spent time in the military. Now, I'm going to start this off before we get too far into it. Correlation does not equal causation. So, for you, the listener, don't think that I'm trying to say that if you were once in the military or if someone served in the military, that increases violent tendencies because that is completely false at all there is an entire thing that accumulates to one becoming a serial killer but it just seems like there's a decent amount of them who at some point spent time in the service say though we're going to uh, examine a select few serial killers who happen to have served in the military examine their service if we can do that because it is pretty hard to you know, getting ideas to what they actually did when they were in the military, their crimes, and how all this kind of interlinks together. We're going to begin with John Allen Muhammad, a.k.a. the DC Sniper or the Beltway Sniper. Now, if you're in your late 20s or early 30s like myself, then you probably vaguely remember John Allen Muhammad. He was the person who started shooting people in the Washington, D.C. area, Around 2001 and 2002, uh, as I said, his nickname was the DC Sniper. Some people will remember this. 
uh, but this kind of came in the shadow of the September 11th attacks. So nobody, like, I mean, he kind of kind of was a blip under the radar. John Allen Muhammad was born John Allen Williams on December 31st, 1960 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. His parents were Ava and Ernest Williams. Ava passed away when John was about three years old because of breast cancer and Ernest left the family shortly after her death. Muhammad's childhood is a bit, I wouldn't say a mystery, but I just couldn't find too much about it. It looks like he was raised in New Orleans in his early life. His, because of his mother's death, uh, that kind of had an impact on him growing up emotionally. But then again, I couldn't imagine you know, losing my mother at such a young age and how that would impact myself. From what I could find about Muhammad's childhood was that his family members uh, teased and picked on him while he was growing up and this seemed to have carried with him throughout the years uh, because he felt that people couldn't really appreciate his uh, quote-unquote potential as a person. In 1978, Muhammad joined the Louisiana National Guard and served as a combat engineer. Muhammad went on to serve a total of 17 years in the military, uh, specifically between active service army and the National Guard. In 1985, Muhammad went from the Louisiana National Guard to active duty army. So for those who don't really understand what I'm uh, saying between National Guard and active service army. So like the National Guard is like the reserve force, which means that you only like go in for like a weekend a month and like two weeks in the summer. Whereas like active duty military is like you are living on an army base in like the barracks and whatnot and like every day is like you're in the military pretty much full time like that that is your career path that is your life um whereas again like the national guard is like something that you only do like voluntarily um like once a month or so it's not clear as to whether he uh volunteered or if he was like uh you know ordered to go to active service but my guess would be, yes, it was voluntary, mainly because at this time, it was the 1980s, there wasn't like a Vietnam, uh, Afghanistan war going on. There wasn't any kind of major need to call National Guard soldiers to active service army individually. I found conflicting things about Muhammad's earlier time in the service. Some of it seemed pretty good, like uh, he rose the ranks and got to sergeant pretty quickly. But that was his time in the National Guard. And as a person who served in the National Guard, I'm going to go ahead and say this. Just because you got promoted quick, that doesn't make you a good soldier by any means. Even on, like, active duty army, like, just because you get promoted quickly, that doesn't make you a good soldier. That that could just mean that you probably kissed the right asses and whatnot. Uh, I did find that at one point early in his career in the military, uh, Muhammad got into a fistfight with either a officer or a non-commissioned officer and was demoted from sergeant to specialist and there I, I i found kind of conflicting again like arguments as or reasons for why that started uh some say it was over a racial slur some say it was over something completely different uh, i couldn't really find the source but it seems like what i found mostly relayed back to some sort of racial remark that was made Anyways, though, in 1988, he married his second wife, Mildred, and had three children, one son and two daughters. From 
people who were interviewed who knew Muhammad and kind of saw him like about town, like they said he appeared to be a good uh, father and a loving husband. Muhammad seemed to not like his military career. It seemed like more of just a way for him to support his family. And I mean, that's pretty much how, at least like my experience in the military, like that's pretty much how it is for everyone. It's usually just a means to an end and just something that, you know, once you get to a certain point, it's a job that you have, you know, you do your like 20 years and you can retire and whatnot. So that's not too out of the ordinary. Muhammad was described by his fellow soldiers as being very physically fit. And I think, as we mentioned this previously, he did shoot expert consistently with his M16 rifle. But I want to go ahead and say this again, like an M16 qual like rifle qualification in the military is the farthest range you're shooting targets are 300 meters and the shortest range is 50 meters and there's 40 targets and you have to be able to hit all of them. By all means, just because you shoot expert and that you do well in your PT test, that does not make you a good soldier. That just means that you're strong and you're able to fire a rifle pretty well. A lot of the media and reporters who took up this story when this was happening back in the early 2000s, I think a lot of them mistake his expert marksmanship qualification as him being a trained sniper. It is not. Because in order to become a sniper in we'll just say for the U.S. Army solely itself, it is a very long training process and a very, very long school that you have to go to. And there is a lot more skill that has to go into that before you can do that. And honestly, if you take a step back and like really think about it, if you're a military officer or if you're the person who's running a sniper school, ideally, what kind of soldiers do you want to send to sniper training? Do you really want to pass up infantrymen, cavalry scouts, and special forces soldiers to send a guy who, for the most part, was either a mechanic or a combat engineer his entire career in the military? I'll say no. The answer to that is no. It, it wouldn't happen. But again, I think people misinterpret his marksmanship qualification for shooting so high, which is a basic thing that all soldiers have to do, as him being this like expert marksman uh it definitely does play a role in his crimes by all means but i just want to clear that in the air because a lot of the research that i've looked into they paint him as being this like kind of like commando sniper and like no he was not he was a basic soldier who had a fairly lackluster career there were a few good stories i could find about muhammad's time in the army that should let you know how much of a fucking piece of shit he is in 1990, he was accused of stealing an M16. Uh, while he was stationed in Germany, his unit was returning from a qualification range, and Mohammed and his team, this time he's a, he's at the rank of a sergeant, so he probably has about like maybe three, maybe six guys that he's in charge of. Um, they were tasked with cleaning the weapons uh, coming back from this range. I think it was mostly like M16s, M60s, which in itself is a pretty bullshit detail to begin with. If you're in the military and if you fire your rifle, you should be the one that has to clean it. But I mean, in my experience, I, you know, I've been on details as such like that before. It sucks, but you got to do it. Um, but it seems like you tried framing a soldier for stealing a rifle, which he didn't do. 
and the reasons for that is not really clear why. But it seemed like uh, Muhammad hid the M16 in his barracks room, and then when everyone went out searching for it, they um, they found it, and he later, Muhammad himself later admitted to himself stealing it and planning it on someone. Muhammad had this like childish behavior when he was in the army, and if you served in the army, you know what guy I'm talking about. You probably served with this guy who would do these like little like quote unquote and I hate this word so much I hate the word microaggressions but he would do these like little just childish acts and it wasn't so much that he was like trying to stand for anything he was just the guy who was like I'm doing this because technically in the rules I can do it uh one example that I found was his platoon or his company was having a class a inspection and for those of you who don't know what Class A's are, those are the dress uniforms for the Army. Uh, kind of similar to, like, the dress blues for Marines, if you're familiar with those. But it's like, you know, the formal uniform where you put uh, the ribbons on, like, your uh, left chest and whatnot. And um, Muhammad refused to wear his ribbons because he, he kept standing by this entire point of, like, oh, well, there's some kind of regulation and the uniform manual where it's at the soldier's discretion if he wants to wear ribbons or not and you know you're supposed to kind of go all out on those and on uh you know your dress uniform and kind of kind of display everything it's like your moment to brag it kind of reminds me of office space where it's like yeah you know you want to show off your flair and i I don't think i've ever met really any soldier who wasn't like oh yeah i want to not I want to take off all my ribbons or like badges and everything that I've earned. It's one of those things where you can display like everything you've done in the military and show a little bit of pride with it. But he was just being a dick and being like, Oh no, I'm going to do the opposite of that. There's another incident that occurred between Muhammad and another Sergeant in his platoon while they were deployed to Saudi Arabia during the Gulf war. What the dispute originated from is unknown, but it ultimately ended with Muhammad supposedly attempting to frag his platoon. And for those of you who don't know what fragging is, it was a it was a thing that kind of started during the Vietnam War. If you got into like an argument or a disagreement with a guy to the point where you wanted him dead, you'd wait till this dude till a dude was sleeping in his tent. And then you would take a grenade and throw it in and essentially just blow the tent up. So one night in Muhammad's platoon's tent, an incendiary grenade went off. And everyone was able to get out and they were able to like put the fire out with, um, you know, like sand and other like shit that was by them. Um... Muhammad was detained by Naval Criminal Investigative Services, NCIS, but was released. It should be noted, though, that during their investigation and their reporting, the pin of the grenade that was thrown was found right next to Muhammad's bunk. So it seems like he was the, the person who pulled the pin and threw it. Also during his time in the army, Muhammad converted to Islam, or more specifically, the Nation of Islam. For those of you who don't know what the Nation of Islam is, it is defined by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group that's very anti-Semitic and believe in black supremacy. This will play a bit more into the story later, though. 
Muhammad left the army in 1994 and started an auto mechanic business that failed. After that, he attempted to start a karate dojo because I definitely want a mechanic and a karate instructor to go hand in hand. His karate dojo failed as well. And later, his wife Mildred, who was Muhammad's second wife, got sick of his shit and finally filed divorce in 1999. Muhammad continually threatened Mildred on different occasions, so she went and filed a restraining order against Muhammad. With a restraining order filed against him, Muhammad fled to Antigua in the Caribbean and took his three kids they had with Mildred with him. While there, he made a living on forging various types of government documents. This is also where he met his future accomplice to the murders that he would commit, Lee Boyd Malvo, and they supposedly met in an electronic store. Muhammad eventually returned his children to the United States to reunite with their mother, and when he did, he came back with Lee Boyd Malvo. Muhammad and Malvo bounced around the country, staying in homeless shelters, and Malvo would later claim that Muhammad would visit predominantly black neighborhoods throughout the country and preach the word of the nation of Islam and also give very anti-American speeches. Muhammad became a bit of a surrogate father to Malvo. And when I say that, Muhammad did a bunch of like crazy shit to quote-unquote toughen up Malvo. Outside of teaching him how to shoot guns, Muhammad put Malvo on this very strange vegetarian diet that at one point just consisted of honey and crackers. He made him like vigilantly read the Nation of Islam and like writings from the Nation of Islam as well as like just Islamic writings. He also put Malvo on this like intense exercise program, which I couldn't find too much more of that. And the biggest and weirdest thing that like I found about this was that Muhammad chained Malvo to a tree in the middle of nowhere for four hours just to see like if he would crap I, I like I couldn't find any reasoning behind like what they were trying to do but this was kind of like the montage phase of the movie that like you know led up to the shootings just to give you an idea as to where we are in the story and like where we are on timeline uh Mildred divorced Muhammad in 1999. So this is like between, you know, 2000 to 2002 when all this is happening. But during this time, Muhammad had been stewing his hatred for his wife and as well society. And this eventually is what led Malvo and Muhammad to start committing these murders. I don't really want to put Malvo too much into it because I feel like he was just influenced more by Muhammad because he became sort of a father figure to him. So I'm going to get into motives and everything that causes later, but I think at this point in the story, we can kind of tell that Muhammad and Malvo are on their last leg and they're, you know, kind of at their down point. And they're kind of stewing with society and like their, you know, their hatred with everything around them. So I'm going to kind of gloss over this. But overall, Malvo and Muhammad were connected to the murder of 17 people total. Uh, Ten of which were during the actual Beltway murders. And then 
there were seven people that were killed that led up to that. And those those are all stories in themselves. But the Beltway shootings were committed within the highway loop surrounding Washington, D.C. But as I mentioned before, there were some preliminary murders that happened in states such as Virginia and Arizona. And just they these guys traveled the entire country just, you know, hurting people, killing people. Muhammad and Malvo cruised in a blue Chevy Caprice that they modified to act almost as a killmobile, quote-unquote. They cut a small hole in the trunk of the car by the license plate and cleared out the trunk of the car completely. The backseat of this model car could be dropped down, so what they would do is they would drop the backseat down, and then either Muhammad or Malvo would be able to take a prone firing position in the backseat of the car, and they had a stolen Bushmaster, which was, I believe, the weapon they used the most during all these murders. They would take a couple of shots outside, and then, like, one person would be shooting in the trunk of the car, and the other person would be sitting in the driver's seat, and they would just be able to drive away immediately. Uh, If you want to... I highly recommend Google Blue Caprice... DC shootings and it is really interesting because the FBI like diagrams all of it out and how they did it and I think it's like still on display to this day during the shootings Muhammad tried being clever and tried like branding himself by leaving like tarot cards the death card specifically with a message on it that said call me God for you you, Mr. Police, and by the way, the Mr. was lowercase when uh, he wrote, for you, Mr. Police, and he also wrote, do not release to the press. Also, during the time, there was, uh, anonymous hot- there was an anonymous hotline that was set up, and Muhammad himself called it and said that uh, if they wanted the shootings to stop, the U.S. government would have to give them $10 million, and he was willing to set up some sort of negotiation to have that dropped off. Mohammed and Malvo were arrested on the 24th of October, 2002, the same month that the murders began. And this is, like, one thing that I feel was kind of overlooked a lot in American society at the time because we were still kind of getting over you know, the events of September 11th, if you were alive during that time. Because Muhammad stayed relatively quiet throughout his uh, trials, the motives of the shootings remain fairly unclear. It was theorized by prosecutors that Muhammad wanted to kill his ex-wife, but he didn't want to be connected to it. So his entire plan was to start shooting random people And then eventually he would shoot his wife so he wouldn't be linked as a suspect. Which I feel makes a lot of sense. If there's a random shooter, then nobody can really be linked to it. And I think that's what Muhammad was going for. However, though, Lee Boyd Malvo, in a series of jailhouse confessions and interviews, that theory kind of begged to differ. Malvo stated that Muhammad wanted to start an all-out race war in the United States, and this kind of goes back to Muhammad converting to the Nation of Islam. He felt that if Malvo 
and Muhammad went out and started shooting random white people, it would, again, quote-unquote, wake up black Americans, and they would start taking up arms in the ensuing struggle. Malvo wasn't diagnosed formally, from what I could find, of any kind of, like, mental you know, disease like schizophrenia or anything. But some of the research that I did that was based on Malvo's account of the motives should be taken with a grain of salt because when he did try writing a formal confession, this is years later, included sketches of Saddam Hussein and various characters from The Matrix. In the end, though, Muhammad was put on, or was put to death by lethal injection in 2009, and Malvo is currently serving a life sentence without parole at Red Onion State Prison in Virginia. Next we're going to discuss Israel Keyes, who is the closest thing we have to a millennial serial killer. Israel Keyes was born in Richmond, Utah in 1978. As a child, he was homeschooled, and while he was growing up, his family moved to Stevens County, Washington. After the family's move to Washington, they began attending a church called The Ark, which is known for being a part of the Christian identity movement. For those of you who are not familiar with what the Christian identity movement here in the United States is, here is the best definition I could find from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Christian identity is a unique anti-Semitic and racist theology that rose to a position of commanding influence on the racist right in the 1980s. Quote unquote Christian in the name only, the movement's relationship with evangelicals and fundamentalists has generally been hostile due to the latter's belief that the return of Jews to Israel is essential to the fulfillment of end-time prophecy. During Key's childhood, he befriended two brothers, Chevy and Chain Kehoe, two white supremacists who later in life murdered a, an entire Wyoming family for their guns and got into a shootout with highway patrol officers in Wilmington, Ohio. The brothers spent time in Elohim City, Oklahoma, which is like the mecca for white supremacists and the Christian identity movement. Elohim City in the 90s harbored people such as Timothy McVeigh, who went on later to commit the Oklahoma City bombings in 1995. At age 20, Israel Keys joined the U.S. Army. From what I could find and what I could piece together, I'm thinking his MOS was as an 11 Charlie, which is a mortar crew member. From what I could find it seemed like he was on a mortar crew at some point so i'm going with 11 charlie he was an infantryman or at least in the infantry job field we can piece that together because he did exit the service with a expert infantryman badge which anyone can get but it's usually specified towards people in the field of you know infantry jobs uh keys was stationed primarily at fort lewis washington and he was assigned to 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry Regiment, 2nd Infantry Division. At some point, he spent time in Egypt, but I like I don't I don't know exactly what they were doing there. I'm pretty sure it was just like a peacekeeping mission because they still rotate um, units to Egypt to this day. Throughout his life, Keyes developed a sort of infatuation with serial killers, which. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I know plenty of people who like learning about serial killers, but it's kind of 
where his life takes a turn where it becomes kind of odd. Uh, during his time in the army, Keyes learns to live a very regimented life, a very uh, schedule-driven life, and he carries that with him even after he ETSs. Keyes, during his confession, said that the military and his time in the army didn't affect his mindset and when it came to the murders. I point this out because I watched a few different documentaries about Keyes, and like the biggest like point they try to nail on is time in the during his time in the army is that's like what caused his, that's that's like what triggered they're like oh well he became a professional killer when he was in the army and that's not really the case according to the military records i could find keys much like john muhammad had a rather lackluster military career they never did anything to actually like stand out and both never saw any kind of like actual combat and exited the military with essentially participation awards he's left the army at the rank of specialist which isn't anything incredible but if you watch some of the documentaries that i watch they make it seem like some official high degree certification getting the rank of specialist or getting promoted to that is not some fucking rare achievement if you join the army you'll automatically get the rank if you just stay in for two years and don't fuck anything up while in the army keys just kind of faded into the background uh, he said being in the army bounced him out. He was able to start interacting with other people and found that alcohol made it easier for him to kind of seal those connections. Keys would get fucking hammered and dare his buddies to do crazy shit like brand him with different metal objects. Keys overall, though, was a quiet soldier and kept to himself. He would spend weekends outside of like partying with his like barracks you know his fellow like barracks dwellers he would just kind of sit in his room get hammered on wild turkey and listen to the insane clown posse so israel keys from a young age had the desire to kill and some speculate this is one of the biggest reasons why he joined the army was for the potential of going to combat and having the opportunity to kill someone keys however joined the army in the 1990s and there wasn't too much in terms of world conflict or even combat going on at the time keys ultimately left the army on july 8 2001 now how he stayed now had he stayed in a few more months he would have had the opportunity more than likely to go to war because september 11th happened in that year the attacks on the world trade center and with that came the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan. When Keyes left the army, he ended up starting his own contracting business in Alaska. And apparently he was kind of the biggest douchebag boss you could ever have. He was the type of guy who would be like, yeah, I've worked 10 hours straight without eating. I'm still going at it. Like that was the type of attitude he had. He came off as the type of guy that would wear shorts during the coldest part of winter and be like, yeah, it's not even that cold out. I'm again going to gloss over the murders that this piece of shit committed, but it was during this time when Keyes left the army, started his own business in the early 2000s, when he started traveling to the continental United States and started robbing banks and murdering people. Keyes is fairly unique because he would go to different parts of the U.S. and bury what were later deemed as, like, quote-unquote, kill kits, 
which were drums that contained money, weapons, and other items for Keyes to commit his murders. So Keyes killed at least three people, but it's hypothesized that he killed probably eight plus more. Um, but what we could prove, it was three confirmed. Keyes was arrested after the abduction and murder of Samantha Koning, who was an 18-year-old college student. Keyes abducted Koning from a walk-up coffee shop in Alaska, and the surveillance footage itself can still be seen on YouTube today, and it's pretty fucking horrifying. If you want to watch it, watch it, but it's so, so creepy. Uh, but in the end, Keyes ultimately was arrested, and he was interrogated by the police, and his entire interrogation and confession can be found on YouTube as well. And you can see by his mannerisms how much of a fucking douchebag this guy is. Before Keyes was handed down an actual sentence, and I, I, I can't remember exactly how far his trial went, Keyes ended up cutting his own wrist, and then he hung himself in his jail cell. So justice was never really, never formally served down to this fucking asshole. But that ends the life of Israel Keys. And we move on now to our final serial killer that I'm sure everyone is familiar with who also served in the U.S. Army, which, I mean, is probably not widely known about his life, but we will now cover Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was born May 21st, 1960. He spent part of his childhood in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His father was a chemistry teacher and his mother was a typist instructor. His mother, during his childhood, had a lot of mental health issues and she went as far as to try to commit suicide by swallowing a bunch of Equinol pills, which is pretty much like a low-grade tranquilizer. As a child, Dahmer had an obsession with dead animals. He used to pick up roadkill and dismember the carcasses in various manners. He once decapitated a dead dog and put the head on a stake. Later, Dahmer's father recalled that his son enjoyed the sound of bones being broken. The family eventually moved to Doylston, Ohio, which is south of Akron. And for those of you who don't even know where Akron is, Akron, Ohio is. It's about an hour south of Cleveland. I googled Doylston and I was hoping to see that like the entrance sign into the town would say something like, Welcome to Doylston. Jeffrey Dahmer lived here once. Dahmer's father received his degree in chemistry and took up a position as a chemist in Akron, Ohio. The family moved again to a suburb outside of Akron called Bath, Ohio. And this is where Jeffrey spent his teenage years. Throughout high school, his classmates referred to Dahmer as sort of a class clown as he would show up to school wearing an army-style jacket and chugging beers and cheap vodka. And to be honest, at this point in the story, I probably would have been friends with Dahmer had we gone to high school at the same time. And I mean, again, this is disregarding everything that happens later in the story. It was also during his adolescence when Dahmer realized that he was gay. Uh, this was during a time in society, though, where being openly gay was not 100% accepted. 
During this time is also when Dahmer began materializing a rape fantasy that manifested into the the eventual murder of a jogger who would pass by his house occasionally. Three weeks after Dahmer graduated high school, he committed his first murder. His parents had recently divorced, and this was unknown to them at the time, but he was staying at the family house by himself. Dahmer picked up a hitchhiker and took him back to the house where only he was staying at. While there, they got drunk, and Dahmer beat the dude to death with a 10-pound free weight and then played with his dead body. In 1979, after a short stint at business school at Ohio State University, Dahmer joined the U.S. Army. He served as a combat medic, and by accounts from people who served with him, Dahmer hated having to stick people with IVs and take people's blood. Apparently, he froze up or straight up fainted. One of the best stories I could find about Dahmer being in the Army was that he would pop up in a guy's barracks rooms with a suitcase and open it up, and it would be like a mini bar, which is kind of kind of funny. Uh, you know, it's something that I would imagine out of an 80s movie like Porky's or like Revenge of the Nerds or something like that. While Dahmer was in the Army, though, his violent behavior grew. In uh, 2010, two men who served in the Army with Dahmer came out and said that they were sexually assaulted by him. Dahmer struggled with alcoholism while he was in the service and was discharged in 1981 under the conditions that he was failing to adapt to the military life. It should be noted, though, that overall it was considered an honorable discharge. After his discharge in the Army, Dahmer kind of bounced around throughout the United States. He spent some time living in a hotel in, I believe, Miami, Florida, and then once his money dried up, he moved back to Ohio, but then ultimately found work in a chocolate factory in Milwaukee. While there, he would frequent gay bars and gay nightclubs and bathhouses as well, but wouldn't really interact with anyone. Dahmer would show up to a bar and he would just sit in the corner drinking by himself until closing time and then he would approach his victims. He had other methods like picking up teenage boys in the mall and convincing them to come back to his apartment for photo shoots and whatnot. Dahmer's overall motivation for approaching his victims was to create essentially a zombie sex slave, which sounds ridiculous, but that's kind of like after all of his confessions and everything that's what it sounds like his like goal was later on in his murders he tried drilling holes in the heads of some of his victims and pouring battery acid in them to try to pacify them and putting them into submission for what he wanted to do Dahmer did incredibly disturbing shit to his victim I'm not going to get fully into it but he was arrested in 1991. He confessed to everything in horrifying detail. He killed and cannibalized over 17 people, and he was sentenced to life in prison. During his time in prison, people fucked with Dahmer constantly. One of the reasons was because everyone found out he was gay, which at the time, you know, in, in prison people who are gay they tend to have a harder time just inmates like they fuck with them constantly 
Um, but during Dahmer's time in prison, one inmate attempted to slit his throat, and he was eventually moved to PC. It was there, though, when Dahmer met his end. In 1994, he was on work detail to clean some showers with two other inmates. Their names were Jesse Anderson and Chris Scarver. Scarver was able to get a hold of a metal workout bar, like a weightlifting bar that you would like bench press with, and he beat to death both Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer. And that, I mean, that that is the end of the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. He was beaten death in a prison shower by another piece of shit inmate. And that that was the end of his life. He he killed, he murdered, and cannibalized people, and he ended up just getting the shit beat out of him until he died. So one thing that I think should be understood. So all these guys served in the U.S. military, specifically in the U.S. Army. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode was to really put the spin on it that not everyone who joins the military is as fucked up as these three individuals that we cover today. And there is tons more. There's like Charles Ng and Leonard Lake, who were both Marines. There's, you know, the Gary Ridgway, the you know, the, the serial killer out in Oregon. Um, but really, I just wanted to cover this because these guys, yes, they may have served in the military, but they had really fucked up lives beforehand. These guys act as outliers towards it. And I think one thing that should be understood is that whenever you meet someone in the military, don't ever, like, a lot of the documentaries I watch about these guys try like they tried putting this position and saying that oh well you know when they were in the army this is what really enhanced their you know their their desire to kill no it wasn't they were just fucked up people and they did fucked up shit because they were fucking idiots and they were dumbasses and they were douchebags and don't ever think that if you ever meet someone in the military that they are capable of doing things like this. Again, these are outliers to the problem. But, I mean, that's that's really all that I have now. So, I mean, sorry it took me so long to put out, uh, you know, another episode. But I thank everyone for listening. My name, again, Brian Hoops, and this has been Walking Through Fire. I will have another episode out very, very shortly, so please stay tuned. Thank you again, and you'll hear from me again soon.